you want to listen to this episode ad-free, you can do that now with our all-new Apple Podcast subscription. For $2.99 a month, you'll get your episodes ad-free and you'll get access to our exclusive bonus archive. Thank you to all of you who have already subscribed. We hope you're enjoying. Welcome to the Murder Diaries. I'm Natalie. And I'm Paige. Elvis was the king of rock and roll, but the king of Elvis impersonators was Dana McKay. Known to some as the original Elvis impersonator, Dana was a well-known personality in Las Vegas in the late 70s and through the 80s. Dana was the image of the king. And even in candid family photos, he looked like he could pass for Elvis. He didn't just look like Elvis, though. He sounded like him. Dana was able to perform the king's hits with a backup band and his own vocals. There was no lip syncing when it came to Dana's shows. Dana proved he could act like Elvis too. And in 1980, he was cast in a made-for-TV movie entitled, This is Elvis. And he helped with a 1982 hard copy called I, Elvis, where he played a 35-year-old Elvis. In 1983, Dana played Elvis for the Legends in Concert stage show at the Imperial Palace Hotel, a show that still plays to this day, making it the longest-running and most-awarded show in Vegas. That's saying something. But by 1990, Vegas was overrun with Elvis impersonators. And despite being the first and most well-known, Dana struggled to find enough work due to the increased competition. So he hung up his white rhinestone jumpsuit and focused on his other passion, which was landscaping. However, Dana wouldn't be able to fulfill his new dream of running a successful landscaping business. This is his story. You still think it's in my head But I'm walking with the dead Dana McKay was born in Los Angeles, California on February 12, 1956. Dana had a daughter, Misty, born around 1980 with a woman named Alifonsa. Dana and this woman's relationship is really unclear. It doesn't appear that the couple were ever married and it's unknown how long they were actually together. But what we do know is that as Misty grew up, Dana didn't see her often. And it's reported he just had her during the summers. Then in 1984, Dana married a woman named Linda, but the pair divorced two years later. It's also not known when he moved to Las Vegas. But we do know he was there in 1977 because that's when he started working as an Elvis impersonator. The first Elvis impersonator. A career that lasted him nearly 15 years. Dana bought a home on one acre of land on the 3600 block of Edmond Street, which is on the south side of Las Vegas. He called the 3,900-square-foot property Mini Graceland, which is an obvious nod to his love of all things Elvis. This property, which featured a recording studio on the top floor with picture windows overlooking the strip, needed a lot of work. But Dana was good with his hands, and he set to work fixing the house up. And at some point, Dana started a relationship with Mary Huffman. Mary, who was born in Oklahoma on May 18, 1944, was a beauty queen, who was crowned Miss Nevada in 1989, nine years after she moved to Las Vegas. Mary was as smart as she was beautiful, earning degrees in fashion and business management from colleges in Missouri and Texas before her move to Nevada. She used her qualifications as the owner and operator of Encore Fashions. Like Dana, Mary had one daughter from a previous relationship. And during her relationship with Dana, Mary moved into Mini Graceland, 
Dana's four-bed, three-bath home located in a private gated resort. Mary eventually became part owner of the property. And while the couple never married, Mary called herself Dana's wife. Dana had multiple girlfriends during his relationship with Mary. However, that's something else that we don't know about this relationship. Did Mary know about them or not? We can't say. After his Elvis impersonator days came to an end, Dana started landscaping, something he was passionate about and something he thought he could make a business out of. He worked mainly with palm trees, having them shipped in from a contact in California and planting them around high-end homes and hotels. Now, this was way before Vegas was covered in palm trees and we can thank Dana for being key to making them commonplace in the area. Around this same time, Las Vegas and Clark County officials were planning to have palm trees planted along the strip and they were taking bids from companies who could complete the work. Dana may not have had the necessary tools to complete a project of this major scale, but he had the knowledge and the skills to make the planning successful. So he needed an investor. This led Dana to approach a friend of his, Tim Stone Street, who owned a business called Stone Street Motor Cars. And this guy was able to provide the cash investment that Dana needed. Together, they formed Paradise Plants in December of 1992. And Tim invested what would be $100,000 in today's money in the business. This cash infusion allowed Dana to buy a backhoe, a 40-foot storage trailer, a crane, and so much other equipment. Despite the name of the business, Paradise Plants, it definitely wasn't Paradise. The business partnership soon soured, and within five months, it had dissolved, and the pair was heading to court. Dana believed that Tim only went into business with him to learn the trade, take his own knowledge, and then basically ghost him and start his own business. And now a word from today's sponsor. We've talked about Factor before, and you guys know I love Factor. My sister actually turned me on to Factor quite a while ago, long before we got the amazing chance to work with them for this episode. With the busy fall season ahead, you might be looking for something like Factor to be able to get some wholesome, convenient meals and something more nutrient-dense that you know is sitting there in your fridge waiting for you on those jam-packed days. Factor is America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit, and it's no question as to why. They offer chef-prepared, dietitian approved ready-to-eat meals that get delivered straight to your door. You get to save time and eat well. Fall is coming into full swing, and I know most of us are super busy around this time of year. It's back to school and then the holidays. I love having Factor in my refrigerator to know that on those crazy days, I've got something nutrient-dense and that I know I can count on being tasty right there waiting for me. Not only does Factor offer their delicious meals, you can round out your meal and replenish your snack supply from an assortment of over 45 add-ons. You can add on breakfast items or choose from their refreshing beverage options. They have juices, shakes, and smoothies. I love them all. If that hasn't sold you to try Factor with me already, you can rest assured that when you do choose Factor, you're making a sustainable choice. They offset 100% of their delivery admissions, which we love. They also source 100% renewable electricity on their production sites and offices. Join me in the love of Factor by heading over to factormeals.com slash diaries50. There, you can use code DIARIES50 to get 50% off your order. That's code DIARIES50 at factormeals.com 
com slash diaries50 to get 50% off. Enjoy. According to the Las Vegas Sun, Dana represented himself. Well, Tim hired an attorney from Goodman Chestnut, the firm co-owned by the man who would go on to become Las Vegas's mayor. Dana and Tim were butting heads. They were in a disagreement over who got to keep the equipment purchased for the business. We know that Tim paid for it, but Dana had them at his house. And Tim even sent officers to repossess the equipment, but Dana refused to let it go. During the process, Dana found a new business partner, Danny Coker. Listeners may actually recognize Danny's name from his reality TV show, Counting Cars, which aired on the History Channel and followed his business, Counts Custom. Nearly a year later, on Saturday, October 2nd, 1993, a neighbor became concerned after realizing that they hadn't seen Dana or Mary for a couple of days. The neighbor went over to the house and found the door open, so they let themselves in. And that's when they found the couple lying in the entryway, surrounded by blood and bags of groceries. Both Dana and Mary were dead, and it appeared that they had been deceased for at least a day. Autopsies would later show that both had been shot multiple times at close range. The police were called, and an investigation started right away. Of course, Dana and Mary's families were contacted and told the horrible news. Dana's daughter, Misty, told the Toronto Sun in 2020 that she will never forget the sound, the wail that her grandmother made when she learned that her son, Dana, Misty's father, had been murdered. She said, it was this cry that I can't even explain to you. It was so terrible. Anybody who has ever heard a mother mourn her child knows what I'm talking about. Misty was just a teenager at the time. And being a teenager is hard enough without navigating something as big as losing a parent, not to mention with the added complexity of their life being taken in a murder. Misty told the San Bernardino Sun that the tabloids and newspapers focused on her dad's murder, which in turn made things more difficult for her. She said that while they didn't see each other often and they weren't close, it was still a huge loss for her to process. She said to the paper, quote, it really hurt because I didn't get a chance to get close to him. Misty's mother said that she would hear Misty crying herself to sleep as she dealt with the enormity of her grief. Grief for the loss of her father and for the dad she never really got to know. Misty would sometimes play Dana's old Elvis records to feel closer to him. The investigators worked to nail down a timeline for the murders. The couple were known to be alive before September 30th, so they knew the murders happened on or after that date. But beyond that, they weren't really sure about anything. The groceries that were found near the bodies contained steak, which had gone bad, but that wasn't useful in narrowing down a time of death. The police also told the media that the house had been broken into before the murders. They believed as early as Thursday the 30th of September, but no further information was given. Now that the investigation was underway, the police started to search for a motive for the murders. And that's when Dana's family stepped in. They shared that prior to the murders, Dana had received death threats. However, there's no information about who made those threats, at least publicly available. Then on October 7th, detectives told hard copy that it was possible that the couple, who were home from getting groceries at the store, walked in on a robbery. But that doesn't make any sense. All of their money and jewelry were still in the house, which suggests it wasn't a robbery gone wrong. Investigators did find one room in the house that was ransacked, but they never publicly shared which one. A detective on the case also suggested that the murder could have been a professional hit, 
because the only thing the detective found missing was a manila folder that Dana took everywhere with him. I mean, everywhere. Because inside the folder was his business information. This detective told the Toronto Sun, quote, Dana always kept a file with him that outlined all of his business. Whether it was his musical endeavors, the palm tree business, his home and personal information, his life finances. And that was the only notable thing that was missing. Somebody wanted that folder. And somebody wanted Dana. Murder Diaries listeners know that we don't hold much space for rumors and speculation, but we do address them when needed. According to the Las Vegas Sun, rumors floated around that Dana was involved with drug trafficking and had been hanging with a rough crowd. Dana's friend Danny said that the police were thinking that the murders could have been a drug deal gone bad, but Danny and other friends insist that that's not the case. Dana didn't do drugs and none were found in his system or in his house. Friends confirmed further that he barely even drank. To them, this theory is just not a possibility. Two weeks after the murder, the Las Vegas Sun reported that Tim Stone Street was awarded the assets from the company that he and Dana were fighting for. And I know what you're all thinking. Suspicion did fall on Tim since he was very openly fighting one of the victims in court. However, he had an alibi. He was in Aruba at the time of the murders and was quickly cleared as a suspect. But Danny Coker didn't believe that Tim was innocent and even went as far as contacting America's Most Wanted who showed up on Tim's doorstep to get a comment from him. But of course, Tim declined to give one. There's yet another theory that I'm going to mention for everyone. And this theory is that the murders were somehow connected to the kidnapping of Kevin Wynn, the daughter of casino mogul Steve Wynn. Steve Wynn, for those who don't know, was the owner of the Mirage, which, when it opened in 1989, was considered the town's most luxurious and glitziest resort as it should have been. I mean, it cost over $620 million to build, which, if you do the math, is $1.5 billion in today's money. The Mirage became more than a hotel and casino. It was a destination. Siegfried and Roy worked there on a $50 million contract. And by 1993, Steve Wynn was one of the top-paid CEOs in America, which brings us to the kidnapping. On July 26, 1993, a 26-year-old Kevin worked for her father in retail operations. The night in question, she finished her shift, worked out at the hotel gym, and ate dinner with her family. She walked home around 10 p.m. But when she arrived at her condo, there were two men lying in wait for her. She was held at gunpoint while her eyes were covered with cotton balls that were then taped to her face. She was then told to strip down to her underwear. She thought she was about to be raped. And she pleaded with the men not to hurt her but they weren't there to sexually assault her. They were there to extort her. Once she was in her underwear, dark sunglasses were put over the taped cotton balls so that they couldn't be seen. And then the photographs started. The men posed her in multiple ways in her dining alcove while they snapped away. The men hoped that the dark sunglasses hiding the tape and the cotton balls would make Kevin look like a willing participant in the photo shoot. The men then called Steve at home and they gave him very specific instructions. Go back to the Mirage and await another call. Then on the next call, Steve was given the ransom demands. The men wanted $2.5 million in exchange for Kevin. Steve was told that if he went to the police, they would release the photo of Kevin for everyone to see. Steve explained to the man who identified himself as boss that 
the Mirage's vault only had $1.45 million in $100 bills inside, but that they could have it all. Steve went to the vault and put the money, which he described as, quote, new money stacked like bricks, in a white plastic bag. He carried the bag like you would carry a baby, cradling it as he walked to his car. Steve didn't call the police. Terrified, if he called for help, it would mean his daughter would be harmed. So instead, he called one of the top private security forces on the Strip, which was run by a former special agent in charge of the Las Vegas FBI. The drop-off point for the money was the parking lot of Sunny Saloon, a block from the Mirage. He left the money as instructed and was given a further instruction. Kevin could be found in a parking lot at the McCarran International Airport. Two hours after Kevin left the Mirage to head home, her father pulled up in the parking lot to rescue her. Steve said he took three steps toward the car his daughter was said to be in, and that's when he froze. He was terrified of what he would find in the vehicle. So he called out to Kevin. And that's when she replied from the back seat, Dad, is that really you? Kevin was shaken up, but otherwise unharmed from the ordeal. During the investigation, the FBI checked the call records from payphones near Sunny Saloon and Kevin's condo. And they found the same number had been called by two of the phones on the night of the kidnapping. The number belonged to a Sacramento-based cell phone owned by Ray Cuddy. The FBI then checked the license plates of every car that had been at the airport that night. And wouldn't you know it? One of the plates was registered to Cuddy. A week later, Cuddy was arrested at a luxury car dealership in Newport Beach, California. He was paying $70,000 on a $183,000 Ferrari. That's some serious cash. But while Cuddy was the ringleader, he didn't act alone. A month later, Jake Sherwood and Anthony Watkins were arrested for their roles. Watkins, who was the youngest of the three, ended up taking a deal where he agreed to testify against the others in exchange for leniency. Then in May of 1994, Cuddy and Sherwood were found guilty in federal court for money laundering, extortion, and conspiracy along with other charges. Watkins took a plea deal, and he served around six years in prison and was released in 2000, whereas Sherwood served 16 years and was released in 2010. As for Cuddy, the ringleader, well, he was paroled in March of 2015, and he lived in a halfway house for six months following his parole. He was ordered not to have any direct contact with Kevin or her family during his three-year period of supervised release. In the end, the investigation revealed that Dana and Mary's murders were not related to the kidnapping of Kevin Wynn. It was an important lead to check out, but was unfortunately a dead end. And now a word from today's sponsor. We all know sleep is important. It's literally the foundation of our mental and physical health. Obviously, that all plays into how we can perform throughout our busy days. It's so important to have a consistent nighttime routine. It's honestly kind of a non-negotiable. Unfortunately, a lot of us don't get enough sleep though. Did you know that less than six to seven hours per night is linked to reduced white blood cell count? And those white blood cells are our army that protect us against illness, diseases, fighting viruses, bacteria, and more. If that wasn't enough, poor sleep is also known to lead towards weight gain, mood issues, and poor mental health. I know all of that that I just listed completely applies to me when I'm not getting enough sleep. We want to introduce to you Beam's Dream Powder. It's their best-selling healthy hot cocoa for sleep. 
It tastes amazing with no sugar added. It's available in amazing flavors like sea salt caramel, cinnamon cocoa, and chocolate peanut butter. Say no more. My sound cliche, but I have to say it. Better sleep has never tasted better. Beam's Dream Powder is a powerful, all-natural blend of reishi, magnesium, L-theanine, melatonin, and nano-CBD to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. The magical trifecta. Some of you may know this about me. I love numbers, so here's the numbers. A recent clinical study revealed that Dream helps 93% of users wake up feeling more refreshed, and again, 93% reported that Dream helped them get a more restful night's sleep. All you have to do to enjoy Beam is mix it into hot water or your favorite milk, stir or froth, and enjoy before bedtime. I like to enjoy Beam, especially on weeknights when I know I got to get up and go to work in the morning. I know there's going to be a lot on my mind of what I want to try and get done the next day. It's just sometimes hard for me to turn my mind off. So Beam's Dream definitely helps me do that. So I like to enjoy it a little bit before I brush my teeth and head to bed. Try Beam with me today and find out what not just me, but Forbes and New York Times are all talking about. Head over to shopbeam.com slash diaries and use code diaries at checkout to get 40% off. This is a limited time only for our listeners. So head over to shopbeam.com slash diaries and use code diaries for 40% off. The case eventually grew cold. There just wasn't enough manpower to dedicate to the case. In 1994, the 1300 Las Vegas Metropolitan Police serviced 779,000 residents and 27 million tourists every single year. In 1994 alone, 9,421 violent crimes were reported, and only 20% ended in an arrest and prosecution. That means 80% were unsolved. The LVPD had the lowest clearance rate in the country for cities with more than 250,000 residents, according to crime experts. But those numbers aren't surprising. When you consider the large number of tourists in town, drinking, gambling, and spending money 24-7. In 2008, Misty, who was an adult by that time, decided to do an online search of her father's name. The results were disappointing. They showed an article that said that Dana's murder occurred during a burglary gone wrong. But Misty knew in her heart that wasn't the case. So she called the police department and she asked for her father's case to be looked at again with fresh eyes, all in the hopes that the killer would be found. Detective George Sherwood, who has no relation to Jake Sherwood from Kevin Wynn's kidnapping, by the way, told the Las Vegas Sun that he conducted a dozen interviews traveled out of state several times and visited a few jails to speak with persons of interest, including a person serving a life sentence for a murder for hire. He wanted to send evidence for DNA testing, something that, as we all know, was in its infancy in the early 90s. Detective Sherwood told local media that there was a strong indication that this was a murder for hire plot and that someone was in the home waiting for them. And if you're wondering where Tim Stone Street is with this new investigation, Detectives tried questioning him, but he declined to speak with them. In fact, he had his attorney tell the local news that the police should be focusing on the drug angle rather than on his client, who had already been cleared. And if you were to ask Dana's loved ones who they feel was responsible for this murder, Misty and Danny Coker both feel that they know who murdered Dana and Mary, and they think he's getting away with it because of his connections. 
In fact, Danny even said, quote, I have no doubt in my mind, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I'm positive who had this done. And this is where the story ends. The case appears in the media sporadically, usually due to an interview with Misty, who's still pushing for a resolution in the case. But as cases grow older and colder, with no new information found, the story abruptly ends without warning. This episode is shorter than usual due to the lack of information available about this open investigation. And that happens as police hold back information to protect the investigation. Dana and Mary's murder remains unsolved to this day. Cold case detectives believe the case can be solved with more input from the public. Anyone with information is urged to call the LVMPD homicide section at 702-828-3521. That's 702-828-3521. Now here's your call to action. Share this story on your social media accounts. Tell people you know about it. Not just for Dana and Mary, but for their loved ones as well. Make sure you follow us on all of our socials at the Murder Diaries Pod. And until then, stay safe. Bye. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.